Hey everyone, my name is Danny Johnson and this is a pilot episode for a new podcast we recorded last week. The idea here that we're experimenting with is a news-based show recapping surfing's biggest stories each week. The first attempt at the show happened to coincide with what was a fairly quiet week in surf news. I think when we recorded last week, I even mentioned at some point that there's not much that's happened this week. And then right when we were about to publish this episode on Tuesday... We were hit with the devastating news that a surfer was killed while surfing Snapper Rocks. And this is the third shark attack death that's happened on this stretch of coast this year. And we couldn't ignore its significance and, and the impact it's had within the local surf communities. So we've since edited in an interview about the tragedy and attached it to the top of the show. So I'm going to hand it over now to Stab's editor, Ashton Goggins, and his conversation with WSL coach, Cuss Podcast co-host and Gold Coast local, Stace Galbraith, about this tragic event. One of those waves you never think about shark attacks in Australia. And I did. Have, when was the last time there was an attack at Snapper ever? Oh, at Snapper, I'd have to say I don't even know if there has uh, ever been one. Um, I was trying to just do my research before we jumped on the call just to get it right. I'm pretty sure 1960 on the Gold Coast, like for the whole coast. So you want to walk us through what you know from uh, what you've heard about the session yesterday and what happened? Um, yeah, firstly, really tragic. Sorry to, you know, his family and everyone that was involved in it yesterday. Like just so shocking. Um, local guy, property advisor, um, really keen surfer, just like love being in the water as, as most of us do. And, you know, just a shocking event. So, um, where it happened on the point was pretty, um, pretty scary spot just with how many people um sort of under the age of 10 surf there um it's no better or worse given the, the age but i still just think that it's just spooky it's so scary i don't think that uh any of us have really digested it yet um and it was just after five o'clock so thankfully there was a couple of the local boys there still lifeguarding um but yeah, pretty late, pretty late in the day, but it's usually never a problem. You know, you always hear don't surf before and after sunrise, stuff like that, but, or sunset, but the Gold Coast, you just never think of that. So yeah, pretty, pretty shocking. So can you walk us through what makes that area different from the areas to the north and south that have seen these sort of increases in shark attacks over the last five years? What makes the Gold Coast unique? There's shark mitigation uh, on the Gold Coast and there has been for decades um the queensland new south wales border is right there at, at d so just around the corner from snapper so it changes states changes laws um uh, all across the gold coast there's shark nets it's not a continuous line but at the most popular beaches there are you know uh, nets in place and then uh, along snapper there's actually uh, drum lines where they they bait the sharks so I think that, well, I know it has had a, a huge effect on the numbers of attacks over the years, and that's why there's been zero until yesterday. And so can you explain the, the, the section of the point that that was at down at Rainbow? That's sort of like the more sheltered, sort of inside, like peely section that you see a lot of longboarders and girls and little kids and old ladies and like... Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's just at the headland there at Greenmount. Um, if you've been to the Gold Coast, it's kind of, you know, in between Kira and Snapper, basically. You know, it's the middle of the point, It you know, more towards the end, particularly when it's that size. It's basically where the wave sort of stops breaking and goes on to Coolangatta Beach break there. And, uh, yeah, um, yeah, 
down the bottom. I don't really know how else to describe it. If you've been to Snapper, you've been to the Gold Coast, you, you know what I'm talking about. Or if you've seen the pictures online, it, it, it kind of makes sense. Um, be like the inside of Trestles or something or the inside of Malibu. Or, yeah. Yeah. So this is the, um, I mean, to, to a lot of people, I feel like that wave is considered the most crowded wave in the world. Um, and what does that, what does that do to a place like, uh, snapper as a lineup? I mean, that's the second time this year that we've seen it empty for probably the first time since it was first ridden. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, this morning there was still a few people out there. Um, the beaches were closed. Um, but the waves are really fun and, People are going to surf. Um, I think Oki was out there. That's not probably not a surprise to anyone. And um, from Dan Scott of Oki out at Snapper by himself. It's pretty striking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and did I hear that they caught the shark, or they think they caught the shark? <laughs> it's a bit. It's a bit of purple monkey dishwasher at the moment. Um, there's been there's been a couple of reports, but it sounds like they caught a shark. Um, there's sharks around here. That's probably something that a lot of people don't realize. It's, there's plenty of sea life and there's plenty of sharks. I think more often than not, they just have a lot to, lot to eat. So they don't, they don't bother coming to suss out the humans, but, um, the drum lines off snapper and that are probably, I hope it doesn't surprise or scare anyone, but they're, they're pretty active. So, um, this was just a yeah tragic, tragic accident. Um, in, in this sort of situation, does it bring up the conversation for guys in Australia about like learning sort of emergency uh, medicine as far as like being able to call, like help stop bleeding and do that type of stuff? Is I mean, is that something you guys think about a lot in the water over there? You know, growing up in Florida, the shark attacks all the time, but it's little bites. It's not like limbs being torn off as much. Mm. Uh, personally, it does. I've had some other experiences in my life where I've, I've, I, I keep up to date with that stuff. But when the shit hits the fan, it's not the classroom. You, I, I don't know that the shit that you learn is gonna is gonna prepare you for that. That's the most the 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 top of the fucking food chain right there. And when the shit hits the fan, I think that um, you know, you're just gonna do your best to be able to help the person. Which it, you know, there was he had some good help there, but I think that the damage was done, unfortunately. Have you ever been? Have you ever had any encounters that close in Australia with great whites at all? You don't really know what you're dealing with. Uh, I, don't, I, per, I personally don't. I, we, we have we have a, a few varieties around here. Um, you know, we can get we can get bronze whalers, which are probably the least of, of your worries, and then tiger sharks, bull sharks, and great whites. Um, again, I don't really know what I'm looking at when I see a, a, a black figure going through the water. I've had a couple of moments um, when we're surfing a couple of different spots around here. There's a there's a pretty famous photo that gets around across the border that. It, it was actually where the guy a couple of months ago got got taken. So um, again, there's lots of river mouse, lots of estuaries that you know when it rains the water runs out. That's particularly when the bull sharks come around because they're obviously freshwater sharks and they can sort of venture out into the, the seaways and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it's um, it's it's generally pretty rainbows and lollipops on the Gold Coast. Yeah, and the, and the proximity to the, is it the Tweed River right there that empties out that is the sort of like feeding area that's sort of the area of concern for the most part? Yeah, I wouldn't really call it a feeding area more than anywhere else in the world of, that has 
a river mouth and island, you know, Cook Island is just out there at Fingal. And um, there's there's plenty of marine life, you know. You, if you take a walk around some of the different spots that have a viewpoint of the ocean, um, I'm sure the boys up in North Stratty won't mind me saying this. It'll keep the crowds away. But you stand up there on the headland for an hour and you see all kinds of shit. But you also see lots of stingrays, um, lots of other things, turtles. And you'd like to think that usually they're the ones that are having a fight for their lives, not 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 a fellow surfer. Yeah. Well, it was a really it was a really sad story to wake up to in the middle of the night, and uh, yeah, our thoughts go out to the family. Yeah, I'm sorry you guys are dealing with that over there. I know that those moments are like oddly like a shared weight amongst the entire country. Yeah, totally. It's it's been unfortunate that there's been um, a, a couple recently, and um, yeah thoughts go out to the family and the friends and, and all the people that were, you know, the first responders there. I'm, I'm sure they did everything they could and uh, yeah, I hope they're doing all right. Thanks, Ashton and Stace. We'll now get back to the original pilot. Welcome to the Stab Podcast feed. My name is Danny Johnson and this is the first edition of a new type of show. The idea here is that we're going to recap some of the most interesting stories from stabmag.com each week by chatting to the mother of fathers who wrote them. And this week we've got three stories, the first being with Taylor Paul who covered the lost surf team and how they somehow in the middle of a pandemic and global border lockdown showed up on a boat in Indonesia and obviously... There was no one around and it was pumping. And so how the heck did they manage to do that? Taylor has the inside scoop there. Next, I'll chat to Sam McIntosh about his exclusive interview with John John. So if you missed it, John John recently announced that he's starting a new brand with Bob Hurley by the name of Florence Marine X. And this is pretty much the biggest thing to happen in surf in a long time, at least from a from an industry point of view, it is. Lastly, I dialed up Ashton Goggins and we chatted about the making of the electric acid surfboard test with Noah Dean, which was just released free online. And then Ashton also gave us a little rundown on when he met the eccentric man that shaped the winning board, Mr. Peter Schroff. And then um, I guess I also got to hear about what happened when Ashton visited Peter's house. And so did Ashton make love to Peter on a bed made of sawn in half Chinese surfboards? To find out the answer to that, you're going to have to listen all the way to the very end. Or, I mean, being a podcast, I guess you can just skip forward to the end right now and find out that, yes, that definitely did happen. Before we get started with the interviews, let's recap the week. And kind of nothing of note happened this week other than a few new surf edits that were released. Most of them were, most of them were pretty average and then... There was one that was an exception to that, being the new Ripkell film that Vaughn Blakey wrote and directed by the name of Postcards from Morgan. This is a lot like Vaughn's first film, or one of his first films that he wrote with Ozzy Wright in 2005, Doped Youth. The formula was for Postcards from Morgan was just get pro surfers, write a script, get them acting and playing exaggerated versions of themselves. And it was hilarious. There was... You know, there was story, there was humor, incredible surfing. And, and I feel like that storytelling was pretty much the difference between most of the other edits that come out. And uh, I mean, most edits are essentially just surfing cut to, cut to music, which at this point, it's unless it's like extreme quality, it's usually pretty painfully boring. Lenny, 
What do you fucking think? Hated it. I find myself bored watching the majority of surf edits at the moment. And it actually, it reminds me of something this guy told me once. I Complete and utter unwatchable shit. I can't remember this guy's name, but I was at a party and this guy was this amazing storyteller. And I asked him, I was like, what, how do you tell a good story? And he answered like immediately. So he, he obviously had thought about it and, and knew what he was doing. Oh, I agree. It's a fucking mission to watch the moment it came on the fucking screen. And he, he just said simply that a good story is for the audience. And I, I just kind of figured that meant that, you know, it should be based around entertaining whoever's watching or viewing or listening. And, and so if you're telling a story and the only point of the story is that you're trying to impress people or tell them how much of a lord you are, then... Chances are that story is going to suck. Not aggressive enough! Ah! And, and that's kind of how I feel about the majority of surf edits that come out. They're mostly just, they're like these visual resumes for the surfers that are somewhat along the lines of, look at all these tricks I can do and, and here's a song I like. Who the fuck are them fuck pricks? And I just feel like there's very little in it for, for me. Nah, for, I mean, for the, there's very little in it for, for the viewer in those type of edits, you know. Just, I mean, give us some narration, some storytelling, some creativity on some level or some originality that's going to hold our attention for, for longer than 30 seconds. I mean, what am I, what am I saying here that like, not only do you have to surf incredibly well, but you also have to be some sort of surfing Spielberg. And yeah. That is exactly what I'm saying, I guess. We rate it no stars. On the other hand, I did just see a sneaky peek of Jay Davies' new film that Creatures of Leisure are bringing out soon and it really fucked me sideways. It was nothing but just tunes and, and surf footage and amazing surfing, but it was just all such quality and it, it was a masterpiece. So make sure you get your eyeballs around that when it comes out. And so what else happened this week? Uh, um, pretty much nothing. I feel like the biggest thing that happened this week was a bunch of guys going on a boat trip to the Mens, which under normal circumstances, that's up there with the most boring thing a pro surfer could do. But given the world's current times, I was, I was pretty blown away when I saw that. I did not see it coming. And I just felt like, who are these guys? It felt like they were just like a, some sort of pack of Jason Bournes with they all had like eight passports each and they were just there to do some sort of illegal espionage or some... I don't know. I was impressed. So let's chat to Taylor Paul about how that happened. So just a quick intro to Taylor. Taylor Taylor's the newest member of the Stab team, but he's he's definitely not new to surf media. He's he's a former editor at Surfing magazine and he's also contributed a bunch of writing to Surfer magazine. And he's just what he's just one of those super well respected and beloved voices in in surfing all around. And something I had no idea about until recently is that Taylor, like, proper charges. We sit there in these meetings, in these video meetings, and I can see in the, in the background of Taylor's room there's these big rhino chaser boards in his house. And I didn't really even think that much about it, but I did see some footage of him uh, at, at Mavericks the other day just striking in to these proper psycho beasts and, and deep as well. And yeah, he's just, he's, you know, those like mellow, understated people that just don't have anything to prove. So they're, and then they just turn out to be the biggest psychos ever. So it's, yeah, it's one of those type scenarios. And Taylor's story was titled, Which CTs just hopped on a sneaky boat trip to the Mets with the subhead empty, pumping, uncrowded like it's 1975. 
Well, I I had heard some rumors that they were going over there on on a business visa and kind of like didn't really understand exactly what was happening, but then um, saw that pop up on Instagram and did a little bit more digging and figured out that they actually, they went over there on a visa that was basically saying they're going to invest in a surf resort or some sort of property over there inside the requirements for what you, what, how you can get into Indonesia right now during COVID is that if you have a special interest in the country. And so like, that's like a business Uh, interest in the country. That'll be good for them if you buy property and set up a business and employ locals and stuff. So I think that they, uh, got a visa like that and we're able to to get over there. Yeah, I, it blew my mind when I first saw it because in my head I was just, oh, it's impossible to travel right now. But then I just thought, ah, oh, there is actually always a way. And I mean, who knows if they are actually planning to start a business, but I mean... What do you think? Uh, <laughs> that 100% not. Who's <laughs> to make a call on what happens in the future? Anything could happen. And, and, it, and it, like it would be a good surf camp. Like if yeah. they set it up and it was like they dialed it into just how they would want it to be, like people would go and stay there. It's pretty mind blowing to just see that Instagram post where they're just standing on the boat, just no one out in what looks like one of the just days of days. Um, how did it make you feel? Cause for me, it, it like, it was just this like, like you got kicked in the stomach a little bit, like yeah. the low part of the stomach. Well, it made me feel dumb because I instantly just realized, oh, holy shit. Of course, if you wanted to actually travel to these places and do that, you could find a way. And maybe not everyone, but certainly people, especially pro surfers, people that aren't committed in any way to being in a certain spot. And I just wondered like, wow, I wonder how, what's going to happen now? Like, is this going to open up? Are lots of people going to start trying to, um, you know, like find little loopholes in, 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 the, in the rules and try and get there because it's, it just seems really possible. It's, it's such a cool opportunity of this, of this time, like during COVID where if you have, if you're that dedicated and, and, you know, 98% of people are not, mm. if you're that dedicated and want to make it happen, you can make it happen. Like, yeah. It's just possible. And in the fact that those guys actually went out and did it and are like currently scoring, in in the mental eyes like it, it's baffling and i really applaud them for doing it because yeah totally and i feel like surfers one of the number one rolling themes of surf conversation is how crowded it was how crowded it is these days and how impossible it is to score waves by yourself but it's it's really not and if you really want to make the effort and i'm not talking about during covid i mean just mean normally if you want to try and go surf by yourself you really can do it it's just a little bit inconvenient and you have to be dedicated and now's a just a prime example where that's true more than ever and the rewards are even greater. And I just wonder how many little stories are going to, oh, um, you know, start slipping out over the next couple of years of, of just these underground uh, hellmen that are just finding, uh, finding waves everywhere. Right. Like maybe, I mean, we saw that one because they're, they're high profile people and we care, but like how many other people were able to do this and aren't posting it on their Instagrams? Yeah. And so you heard about this coming for a little while. Like it, it was, there was, there was a bit of a few background rumors about them trying to get visas. It wasn't exactly a strike mission for this swell. They just locked into this swell. I, so I think that it took them about a week of like heavy paperwork and logistics to, to get the visas approved and, and get it done. Um, so 
you know, they could have either looked at the long range forecast and gone, oh, this is looking pretty good. Let's like see if we can actually make this happen. Or maybe they're just like, it's September in Indo and what, like, we have good chances of scoring. So let's just make it happen. Mm. And is the, the COVID's like really different because I'm sitting in the stab offices here in Australia. You're obviously in California. And what's the sentiment around the American people right now when doing something like this? Like I'm, I'm assuming they probably got tested. They probably got COVID tested before they went. But is there, is there likely to be any backlash from, from Americans on, on the fact that they are traveling right now? You can't do anything without a backlash yeah, these days, <laughs> regardless. So I think that I think that they were smart in kind of ignoring that and just going, yes, people are going to be upset. Yes, we're going to get you know verbal lashings and and probably a bunch of hate hateful DMs. But like, if you're if you got thick skin and you can ignore that, I think it's like you know, I, I wrote something about that, uh, like, you know, probably a month ago on stab talking about, um, like that, that's the main thing you're just going to need is like some time and thick skin because, mm. you know, you can go a lot of places if you want to quarantine right now. And, um, you know, but the thick skin thing is, is, is a big one because most of us don't have it. Most of us are like, I do that, but I don't want to get heckled just either by like my family or friends or whoever. Mm. Um, or just don't want to jump through the hoops to make it happen or wear a mask for 30 hours on a flight or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and do you think it do you think it is unethical to travel right now or is getting tested and 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 being smart, wearing a mask, social distancing all those type of things, is that is that legit? Like is there an ethical concern there? I think there's an I think it's a it's a gray area for sure. Um, but I also think that this thing in my mind, and this is just like completely my opinion now, and we're all reading the same crazy news and listening to the same uh, information, but like, I think it's going to carry on for a while. And I think that the more people can go about like leading their lives as they normally would while taking safety precautions of wearing masks and social distancing and all that kind of stuff is the, the more sustainable it is. Cause I don't think it is sustainable to just like lock everything down for potentially years on end or like, you know, several months on end. We've already six months into it. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I, to me, I'm like, you know, they're on a boat, like, mm. you know, <laughs> like who are they, who are they going to be in, infecting? And yeah, they had to get there, but you know, assuming they took some precautions along the way and, did all the right things. I mean, they're injecting some money into the economy over there, which they desperately need. And sure, I mean, there's there's always going to be a counter argument for it. And I think that I think that I don't know. There's one so, somebody on the Instagram post that uh, that we threw up with Ian Crane. You know, look staring off into I think it was Lance's right. It's like just perfect sunset, and you know the comments were just like so heavy. But the Somebody, so, sorry, I got some guy doing construction in my house. Um, You're right. Somebody said, uh, you know, like any, like everybody just be quiet because every single one of you, if given the chance and a visa, would be on that <laughs> boat right now. And I think I was just like, yeah, that's exactly right. Like we all would be. And it's really easy to be angry when you're sitting on the couch in, you know, foggy California. Yep. And, and do you think this is the future? Because there's a, there's a bunch of countries now that have opened up and they've said, 
I think Tahiti was one. I think and you know the details a lot better than I do. But if you show up with a COVID test that's, you know, within the last couple of days, then you're, you're free to travel there. Is that right? Is, it, is this the future of travel? Well, I think... So I think that that short term, yes, which, but it's, it's kind of a catch 22 because you need a COVID test that's, you know, been issued within the last 72 hours to go to Tahiti, for example. Mm-hmm. But most COVID tests that you get don't come back for five to six days. And so at that point, it's like, well, how do you get, make that happen? And I'm sure there's ways to pay for an immediate, uh, immediate result, um, but that's not like readily available. Like if you just go to your local clinic, it usually takes a little bit longer. And then once you're in Tahiti, they're gonna, I think four days later, they're going to retest you to make sure that you're okay. So it's it's not like you show up and you're fine, but I think that that's the, those are the hurdles that, you know, stop 90% of us. And then there's the, the people that are actually willing to jump through those to surf Chopu without a bunch of, you know, at least foreigners, you know, the locals are going to yeah. be owning it, but yeah. at least the foreigners wouldn't be there. Yeah, far out. So, and, and do you do you think, you've been paying a lot of attention to travel at the moment. Do you think there's going to be more places that open up like that and travel will somewhat resume or, or what's going what's gonna to happen? How do you, what's your prediction for how this plays out? So I, I think short term that will be countries and regions starting to go, look, we need to start easing restrictions because, our economy is suffering and, and we need to, we can't go on like this forever. And they'll start reopening with kind of those, you know, you need, a, you need to have a COVID test, you need to uh, quarantine for X amount of days or whatever it is. Um, and I think that'll be the short term. I think once vaccines are red, readily available, I think it'll be like, you know, if you go to West Africa right now, you'll have to get a yellow fever vaccine it'll be the same thing for, for this. Like if you want to travel, you're going to have to get a, a COVID vaccine. And I think that that's going to make all the people who are like, no way, man, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get that test. They're going to like try and control me or they're going to like make me sterile or whatever the, the fears are. I think that's going to change people's opinions really quickly if they can't travel without one. What about Strider? He seems to be a uh, he he came up in your story. He's a person of note that seems to have somehow jagged it, and he's in Indonesia right now. Is he? Is he been posting incredible photos? Yeah, and he's actually been like, uh, I've been getting like three or four emails, like random like we transfers from emails I've never heard of, being like, Hey, Strider said to send these on over, and there's like photos of him just getting pitted at Padang, and like <laughs> you're just going, God. Is is Strider anyway, angling I, for a for a story on the site? Is that what's going on here? I think I think he's just he's playing the game. He knows he knows that we need content and he's got content and we've we're a hot lead because we we showed interest early on. So maybe he's just following up on that. But I mean, gosh, it looks sick. I, I didn't download one of the links because it was like almost a gig. I was just like, I don't oh, need wow. that on my computer. That's that's how barreled he's getting. He's got like a gig. Forwarded it over to Mikey. Yeah. Man. It's uh yeah, I just, it's going to be, it's going to get quite boring the amount of stories there are of people just um, that were stuck in surf camps and just getting barreled out of their mind. It's going to be. Um, well, I think, I think that got boring. Like that's already gotten boring. Mm. Like the, this guy got barreled over the Costa Rican dude who just kept getting barreled at Kandui and you just kept mm. seeing, seeing posts on that. And then, yeah, you know, same, same thing in the Maldives and, 
and all over. But now, now the, the, the stories that will get boring are all the people that are sneaking around it and figuring out ways. Um, yep. but it's still, I think super interesting and still like, I want to hear of more kind of common folk, like you and me figuring out how to do it. Have you heard any other, any, any whispers of anyone else who's trying to, who's trying to follow their lead at the moment? Yeah. A lot? I have. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you don't want to blow it up too hard. Cause it's like, you know, I have, I have friends that want to get in there and I don't want to make the rush too, too big, 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 too big. Next up, we're going to chat to Sam McIntosh about John John and Bob Hurley's new brand. So anyone that's been familiar with Stab for a while probably knows who Sam is. He's a co-founder of Stab and he's a bit of a genius when it comes to all things business, culture, marketing. All things surf really and Sam also rips and oh, he also charges actually. Even Sam even got a start in one of the Cape Fear Red Bull events at ours one year. So Sam's story uh, on, on John John and Bob Hurley's new brand was titled John Florence unveils his new brand Florence Marine X with the subhead the world's best surfer partners with one of surfing's most successful biz minds. And so before we chat to Sam, I just want to give a little context from a video Ashton made on, on kind of what led us to this point with John. This week, John Florence walked away from the largest contract that a professional surfer has ever inked. His eight-year, $30 million marquee deal with Hurley. Purchased by Nike in 2002, three years after launching. For the last 18 years, Hurley and Nike have maintained the most prestigious and expensive surf team that the world's ever seen. On January 2nd, a handful of Hurley's longest team riders received termination letters. Hurley's A-list were left to deal with their new owners, Blue Star Alliance, as lawyers sifted through contracts looking for breaches and termination clauses. What does it all mean? In 2020, we'll see more unsponsored top-tier surfers than any time in history. Professional surfers' contracts industry-wide will see anywhere from 50 to 70% cuts in annual salary. The career path and financial landscape for professional surfers just took a dramatic turn. And then, of course, after that, surf brands were desperately trying to get John on their team, but it was it was just a really tough task given the financial impacts of COVID and, and on the whole industry. So... Subsequently, John started a new company with Bob Hurley. So let's pick Sam's brain on, on what this means exactly. Well, I guess it's most significant because John's the third of the three biggest earners in surfing over the past 10 or 20 years. He's the third of these guys to step away from a big surf company contract and go it alone. So first there was Kelly leaving Quicksilver, going to Adenon. Second was... Dane leaving Quicksilver and starting Former, and now John leaving Hurley to start Florence Machine X. So if you look at it objectively, there's gonna be winners and losers from this pandemic, and John would have been John was easily the biggest owner of 2019. And then him walking away from the Hurley deal after Blue Star bought it late last year means that the pandemic probably couldn't have happened at a worse time for him because mm. all of a sudden he was in a place, a strong place to negotiate. He was still regarded as, as the most marketable surfer in the world. And then all of a sudden, the sort of the economic gears of the, of the surf industry just ground to a halt as they did everywhere, really. Kelly and Dane's business ventures, it's, there's a whole huge amount of noise and attention when they start, but they haven't yet really been considered commercially successful. So 
what do you think that'll change long term? The question you're asking is the right question because these guys, they, I don't think you can look at something after 12 months or 36 months and say, oh, this is going to be successful. It's not. I think when Nike came into surfing, they came in and made a ton of noise with their 6.0 and they came in with Julian and Kolohe and Lakey Peterson and Laura Annabella was like, this was this big movement. And then after two years, they just packed up and they left. And I don't really think they gave that enough time. And I think for these guys, form is still pretty new. Out of Known is starting to be around for a while, but Out of Known has been around for, what's that, probably six or seven years. And I don't think you get a real read of how strong a business is until they've done that decade. Because that's when you can really sort of see a brand or any kind of business business's position in the market. Business is just not easy. It's a, and it takes a while. Mm. And I guess... Uh, if anyone's going to break that mold and 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 really get really quick growth, it might be the partnership of John and and Bob Hurley. Just given they just seem to have this these shared values, these really well respected places in the industry. It just seems to be like if you're going to do an arranged marriage of business heads within surf, it seems like the perfect one to make. Like, what do you? How do you anticipate the growth for Florence Marine X? It's a really good question because. Yeah, it, on paper, it does seem like the chemistry and electricity is there, but business is a slog, and I think there's a real direct correlation between the intensity of the work and the success of any business. We feel it every day. The harder we work, sort of the, the easier it is. And I don't know whether John and Bob and these guys are, they're already too successful. I don't know whether they're, they're hungry enough to do the 70, 80 hours a week to just go and make, just to make the opportunity just to open those doors and to really grind hard. Like startup businesses are not easy. And then mm. my other concern is they've, they've acquired the brand Simple as well. And so I just don't know how you can have that intensity over two brands because there's just so much time required to care and maintain any brand. And then let alone try to have enough bandwidth to do both. Mm. That would be, I think that might be a challenge. Yeah, especially giving the timing. John's totally in that window, that peak period where he's he's the best surfer in the world, the most talented, the most capable on a wave. And he he looks like if he wants to win world titles, this is his time to do it. So the timing's probably not ideal. And on, on top of that, John seems to have done the best I've ever seen with anyone do in terms of not really getting swept up in in the nonsense of being a pro surfer and actually staying, staying like a pretty, pretty surf stoked um, human. Do you think like he's, he's even suited to doing his own brand? Do I think he's suited for his own brand? You just never know until you go and see the intensity of the work and see what comes out. Mm. Like if you look at someone like Pat Tenori from Ruka or say Ryan Hitzel from Rourke or Dario and Kyle, those guys from Slow Tide, those guys just work around the clock. And I think their success is because of that with someone like say John, or we, or as, as a sort of on the customer side, all we want to do is see cool products and him to make films and him be surfing. I hate to think that he's gonna be bogged down on Zoom calls like the rest of us idiots. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just, yeah, I hope that he can stay, he can just do what he does best and he's not bogged down in the day to day and there's people just grinding in the background. But what does concern me is it's easy to come out with a new email address and an Instagram page and like a holding page for .com, but 
that's all I've heard from these guys. Like, I want to see more from them. I want to sort of, I think this is the chance to re, recreate how a surf company can actually operate. Like, uh, let us in behind the curtain. Like, let us see what you guys are doing. Let us choose between products. Like, show us what you're up to. I think it's been pretty silent since that first drop. Yeah, it, it's, it has been. And even the interview you did with John on the site for that story was, there was very little, very little said. So it's almost like all we've got to go off right now is the name. And a lot of people have made a lot of noise about the name and I was, was not very impressed and had these critiques. But then when I mentioned it, you, you changed my mind pretty quickly. So can you give us a little rundown of your take on the name Florence Marine X and, and whether or not names even matter? Yeah, as that's been the thing that people have been most critical of. And I'm pretty divisive on brand names. And so I look at, I think most of us associate a good holiday with say, going and staying in a really good Airbnb. And if you just take that example for, take that as an example, what is a and b It's like a bed and breakfast, which sort of indicates a frumpy experience. <laughs> and then you put, oh, let's make it contemporary. Let's put the word air in front of it. And I think that's a really good indicator of a brand that it just doesn't actually matter because the product is so good. Yeah, so you're saying that is just a horrendous name, yet we, we, that's the last thing we even think about right now is the literal definition of, that, of those words. Just because the product is good. I feel like yeah. it always comes down to product. As Australians, we love the airline Qantas. But that's the acronym for Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Services. Mm. Similarly, I love the brand Acne. But you're wearing a clothing brand with the word Acne on it? It makes no <laughs> sense. Like you would never expect to do that. Or Billabong's like a swampy bit of water. Rip Curl. Rip the yeah. Curl. Like that's, you couldn't, it's almost like a parody name, Rip Curl, but it works. Mm. Uh, so yeah. I just think if the product's good, then the brand name will work. If the product sucks, the brand name will suck. Yeah. So it'll all be based on the perception that they create around the brand. I and what do so. we know about what do we know about that so far? What John John's he's mentioned that it's going to be about marine exploration or like fairly fairly vague and and expected types of uh, I don't know value proposition so far. What do you, what do you make of what they're put forward? The very little. Yeah, it's hard to tell because we haven't seen anything. Mm. Like it's it's hard to even judge it because you don't want to judge it on its name. You don't want to judge it on a logo because that stuff doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So you just have to wait till the substance of things drop. But yeah, we yet to see what they are. Do you, at this point, can you imagine yourself wearing Florence Marine X? <laughs> well, it comes down to the product. So we're not, we're, whether they're selling cars or watches or in, in this case, they're going to sell apparel. You don't know until you see it. Yeah. You, asked, you, were, you were like, you said to John, hey, is it going to be stretchy? board shorts, please, please don't. And he was like, he came back with maybe, maybe we're even going to do hooded rash guards. So, um, man, it could really be, it could be anything at this point. Yeah, if these guys came out with something that was really different and bold and had a ton of character, I think that would be the opportunity. Like, so John also on that interview said that he likes the sailing brand Helly Hansen. Mm. And if these guys made some lifetime, a lifetime guarantee on this, really robust pair of board shorts that didn't stretch that were almost a little obnoxious. I think that would be exciting. I think it needs to have that a real point of view as opposed to another paired back logo with like a, a little paired back brand with Muticolor palette with a little fucking sailing logo on it. I think that would yeah, be yeah, overwhelming. Yeah. I think- Yeah, I actually, sorry, you go. Yes. I don't know, what do you think? Well, I was actually really excited when, well, there's been rumors swirling around what, what John's gonna do for ages. And one of the rumors was that, this was going to happen. He was going to start his own brand. But 
it was going to only be board shorts. And I thought that was really clever and that really focused um, singular product line was compelling to me because that was interesting. I just don't know right now if there's another reason for a surf brand to exist and or even really how to evaluate the, the market. What do you make of it? Is it is there a space? Is there, there must be opportunity in some way, shape or form. Well, that's what true innovators and entrepreneurs do. They, you don't, obviously, if you go and ask a research group what they think, you're not gonna, you're never gonna get the answer that someone with a vision has. So is there a gap in the market? We don't know. We've got to see what they go and create. Mm. But uh, a, a ton of times, I don't, I don't think that's, there's just any big obvious spot, but I think, um, like, I would never have expected Bob Hurley putting his surname on a brand would work and he proved us wrong there. So yeah. I think, I think, I don't think the surf world needs another understated brand with like a, that muted color palette. That's the one thing that scares me. But if it was a little bit obnoxious, I think it would be unexpected and it would be, it would set it apart. Yeah. What are you imagining when you say obnoxious there? Like what sort of products are you seeing? Well, I just went and when John said he liked that Helly Hansen sailing brand, I was like looking at their obnoxious sailing jackets and they're like red, white, blue, and they're just kind of these bold colors. And I thought if there was a cut and sew board shawl that looked like a Helly Hansen jacket, doesn't look like anything else out there. I thought that would be pretty sick. I feel like John could pull that off. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. But another pair of black board shorts with a Florence Marine X logo on there. Yeah. The world does not need that. Yeah. So... One of the rumors that was swirling around for a little while that John was going to uh, sign with Ripco and then when you and Mick were interviewing him for Unplugged recently, you guys put that to him as a, as a bit of a hypothetical and I was reading into John's body language there that was like, oh, it's on. It's you're on uh, those calls. Yeah, and <laughs> I, I was there just like, that was so telling the way John reacted there and obviously it didn't play out. And so who knows how actually close it got, but do you think that would have been a smart move for Rip Curl or and also do you think it would have been a smart move for John? I think it would have been a supernova play for Rip Curl. When you, can you imagine? You got Gabe, you got Mick, you got Mason and then having John. It's like the super team from the 90s or the, like it's just, yeah. the, it is absolutely all the heavy hitters under one roof. And then they're all sort of in their same space. So they're not really overlapping on one another. Yeah. Uh, Can you imagine a search trip and it's John and Gabe on this just like straight out world title final every time they go away together? That would yeah, have been then, the best. And then you throw in Mick and Mason. Yeah. I uh, yeah, that was a huge opportunity. And I think had Ripco not sold last year and it was still privately owned by Doug and Brian, I think they would have sort of moved to heaven and earth to seize the opportunity to get John. Mm. Uh, I would imagine I'm speaking completely out of score, but I would imagine the new owners must have been sort of tripping out. They, they spent 350 million on this brand. They've got the pandemic hit. They've had to close 170 of their rip curl retail doors. And if you just look at it objectively, just to say in round numbers, those stores, say every store did 100K a month. It's 170 stores losing, no, no longer bringing that 100K a month. So $17 million a year, um, $17 million a month, not just coming in, in, our, in revenue. And then I would imagine it was an uphill battle because never knew how long this pandemic was going to last for. An uphill battle to turn around and say, hey, we need a $10 million plus deal with this John Florence guy. And there's a 17 million month just in their retail stores alone, this bleed. 
it would have been pretty hard. It would have been sort of like, well, we're in the ICU right now and you're trying to get this guy, but we've got all these other world champs. What are you talking about? Like it yeah. Just, it would have been a hard sell. Yeah, especially to the shareholders and stakeholders that have no real intimate knowledge of surf because that company's so much broader than surf. So it would have been a particularly hard sell. Like what? John who? And we've got yeah. these world champs. We've got Tyler Wright. We've got Mick Fanning, yeah. Gabriel Medina. We're fine. So yeah. I, uh, I didn't, I don't really think he had many options. Yeah. In the end. What would you have done if you were John? So you're John John Florence with your brain. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious, Danny. If I were John, well, it depends. He, from, if he took a conservative path, I guess he would have signed a small deal with Patagonia because those, those, a brand like Patagonia aligns with his brand values. And he'd make surf films he'd make sure there's as few obligations as humanly possible because he doesn't really, he only wants to do his sail and keep away from his phone and he lives this, he wants to live his life outside, which is very admirable. And I, I guess he should have just put his cash into tech stocks, but getting into business is tough. Like it's, uh, a lot of us start businesses because we can't get a job and John Doe can get, John Doe can get a job. So as long as he knows he's in for the long haul, and it's not going to be pretty. I think he is making the right decision. I love the boldness of it. I, uh, I love people who take big swings and this is a huge one for these guys and I hope it works. But mm. it's, um, like I said earlier, business is not everyone's cup of tea and John's life is too special to be soaked up on fucking Zoom calls like the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, even, even the Unplugged episode with Dane, where we really got to hear him talking about being in his garage packing boxes for former, it's a little bit heartbreaking given that he can still destroy lips like no one else. And then he's, he's focused on this business, which is great and we all benefit and that's so great. Surfer-owned brands, are, are, I will always be interested in that and, and behind that. But there is a little bit heartbreaking to imagine Dane answering emails and packing boxes when he could be, I don't know, on a boat somewhere and someone else is standing there with a video camera for the rest of our entertainment. He loves it. He loves being a micromanager and getting his systems right. And, uh, and he's a worker. Mm. Like when you, when you do projects with Dane, you know, he's a real worker and there's, um, I guess that's why he's been so successful. Yeah. All right. And do you think, do you think we're going to see a, the public change of John's, uh, persona or, 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 or the way he operates even, even on social media because he posts so infrequently on there and he's part of his mystique and, and brand is, is that he's, he almost seems to, to be above the, the daily grind that other uh, lower level pros have to, have to participate in. Do you think, do you think we're going to see a change in that and he's become more of a brand man, be more regular in the, in the output? Yeah, you're right. He's sort of this unassailable character that plays by his own rules. And mm. he's almost universally adored, but all of a sudden he's going from that position to someone who is, I don't know, I guess he's now a salesman. He's now peddling something. And I don't know whether you remember the fallout that Kelly had when he started pushing out a nun. Did you see any of that? No. What was that? Oh, people would lose their minds. Obviously someone said, hey, you're a visionary. The other people are saying you're a sellout. Your clothes are too expensive. You do this and that. And I don't think John has ever had any of that, that real negativity on his social. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, Other than that little goatee he grew for a while, he's he. No one's ever said a bad word about him. No, the, the Zeke, the little Zeke run in was something. Mm, that's true. I think that was a little sobering, but um, you really can't say anything of substance without the internet creating an opinion. And he's peddling something, and now, unless he doesn't peddle it, but I, I believe he'll have to. And it would be like us. You kind of you got to turn your core and your abs on because uh, the body <laughs> blows are coming. <laughs> it's not too much fun. <laughs> yeah, so that's going to be a new new thing for his world, huh? Oh, yeah. I, uh, I hope he can deal with it. I, uh, I really do. I'm sure he can. I'm sure he's got thick skin. But at the yep. moment, he's, he's just been insulated from all of that for his whole career. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, that's pretty much it. Is there anything about this brand, this... Um, just this story in general, what we know so far that we haven't touched on? Uh, I think what I really love about what these guys have done is typically the internet always says, this person needs to be sponsored, this person deserves a sticker, I should be paid X, I should be paid Y. Both, or all of these guys, Kelly, Dane and John didn't like the deals in front of them. They didn't complain about it. They didn't say a word about it. They said, okay, I'm going to take this into my own hands and create something that I want to create. And that's that's really courageous. I don't know whether it will be the best decision for their careers in the long term, but you really have to rate someone backing themselves like that and doing the work because there's a, there's a hell of a lot of risk in that. Hell of a lot of risk in that. Hell of a lot of risk in that. Hell of a lot of risk, hell of a lot of risk in that. That was Sam Mack. And lastly, we have Ashton Goggins, Stabs editor, no contest host and what else? Ashton's like the voice of Stab. You'd be familiar with his dull set tones all over Stab's films and, and lots of Stab's edits. And I love him, as does anyone who's spent time with this like vagabonding furry bastard. So let's chat to Ashton about his new film project that just came online for free, The Electric Acid Surfboard Test, and this latest one stars Noah Dean. I remember the morning I woke up and saw Stab in the Dark for the first time with Julian when it first dropped on Stab. I was working at Surfer Magazine. And that was the first project that I was like, oh, wow, like Stab's trying to do something a little bit more elevated and next level with their films. That and that um, Remember Ricardo film both dropped like, like in succession. And I was like, oh, they're doing something different over there. And I just remember thinking Stab in the Dark was such a genius idea, but it was really hard for me to relate to even though I like really enjoyed watching break down the boards and stuff, it just wasn't, I'd never really sat and really liked, like parsed the details of a high performance shortboard that thoroughly. I just had written a few that I liked and most shortboards felt pretty similar. But for me, like to have a world-class surfer that doesn't normally ride different boards, try and make sense of them um, was super interesting to me. And I talked to Sam about it and originally it was more about trying to like, I had this idea of just finding somebody like Mike February or Dave Rostovich or somebody who's like really familiar with these boards and putting them on all these different types of equipment and having them explain it. And Sam was like, that's so fucking boring. He's like, why don't we have, why don't we have Dane do it? And I was like, you think you can get Dane to do it? And I think he called him like that day. It was like, hey, you want to do this? And he's like, oh, Dan's, you know, Dan's Dane on the assets. And that first one was, was pretty... Uh, incredible just because it seemed like Dane just got on a heater on some of those boards, the surf was pumping, his legs were sunburnt. So it had this like, that's all I remember when I think about that clip actually is just his bright red legs, which but it made it distinct visually. 
and, oh. and um and i guess it was a success huh yeah that was so that was my first surf film like full-length surf film was working on that with games pretty surreal and that trip came about pretty quickly we were trying to plan a trip to puerto rico and a few other places and he was like let's just go to mexico and he hadn't been on a surf trip since he's had he had his twins and so he showed up like just, you know, like, just like all of us did, like winter bods, hadn't surfed in ages. And the, we showed up for like a perfect, fun, small South swell. And we ended, you know, with Selena Cruz, for anybody that hasn't been, when you go, it's like literally 10 to 12 hour days of surfing and the most relentless sun. And no matter how much sunscreen we put on, we were just getting so roasted. And we, you know, it, to, you know for Dane's, to Dane's credit, he worked his ass off on that project as much as he hated some of those boards. And so Steph did the next one and then tell us how Noah came about. For, how did he get involved? So during the first Stab High when we were in Waco, um, Noah and his filmer might be Malia, but the acid test had come out like maybe two months before that. And they just kept talking about it and they said that they'd just been watching it over and over again. Um, and Noah, you know, seemed to think that it was like some of Dane's best surfing he'd ever done and just kept talking about it. And I was like, well, you got to do it. And then Noah ended up winning the contest and afterwards came and mentioned that he, you know, he's like, I'd love to do a project like that. It's like, you know, he's stoked. And also Noah's such a good fit for this project just because he was famous for only ever riding his 6-1 LSDs, his Luke Short design. 6-1, that's his go-to. He never mixes it up unless he's unless it's a bit bigger and he jumps on Takoro's step-ups. But so he he's essentially just a guy that, rides this exact same board no matter what the conditions, yeah? Yeah, so the, what made Noah super unique was that he had been, you know, he was raised, his dad was this iconic Australian shaper who sort of bridged the gap from the 60s longboarders and 70s single fins all the way through 80s, you know, high-performance stuff, and you know, an Australian longboard champ. So Noah was raised around all that other eccentric stuff. Mm. He just was a shortboarder. So he, yeah. it wasn't that he didn't know about it. It's just that that wasn't his thing. Yeah. But he had a really deep respect for it. He was super, he had like a granular understanding of a lot of that surfboard design history. Noah's, Noah's upbringing was essentially burning around Australia in, in the car with his dad and he would go around and visit people like Terry Fitzgerald and all these complete dons of Australian surfing and shaping. And, and so he he's his understanding of surf culture and they're all like opinionated people. And Noah's I couldn't believe Noah when I first met him when he was 17, I was like, Holy shit, this guy knows a lot about surfing and surfboards and just surf culture in general. And he's fucking opinionated and hilarious. And so like, while he's kind of understated and, and it might not come out all the time, he's definitely not, um, you know, he's not like a surf nerd talking about shit all the time. It, the stuff that he knows and he's, his confidence around the, the different the different eras and, and styles of surfing is, is huge, huh? Yeah, which is something that I think that someone like Mason and him share, you know, where these yeah. kids who are like thoroughly modern, like they're very much like the current vanguard of high-performance surfing, but they were so obsessive when they were kids with consuming everything that came at them from their dads. And you see that with the, with the way they interact with, the, the older generation of surfers, you know, a lot yeah. of kids their age are like, they're not too cool for it, but they, they just don't, they just don't know why they should care about these guys. And Noah and Mason, like that's their, that's like what they vibe on. It's like, yeah. you know, talking about a session that they had with Derek or with, you know, with 
seeing Herbie Fletcher paddle out off the wall and like knowing what that means, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so it was cool, like having, you know, every day was like that. It was like, no would be sitting out back drinking, you know, Corona with all those boards around, like watching pipe and people could be coming in concessions and asking questions about whatever board he was riding that day. And so it made for really easy filming because it was like really natural conversation. And, and Noah's got such an interesting trajectory of a Hawaiian experience where, you know, obviously he's probably been there a million times uh, being a grob. And, but then th- what year was the surfer pole year when he stuck his finger up and said, fuck the, fuck the WSL? WSL. Oh, that was a long time been, ago. But. It must have been 2011 or 12, something like that. Yeah, it was yeah. But, but, but Noah just, you know, just whatever. Said, said said that and then it just so happened to follow two days of absolutely no surf on the North Shore and nothing for anyone to do but just get sort of a bit antsy because there was no surf and sit around and talk about it and he actually had he actually like copped a shitload of heat around that and to go from that moment there where he was kind of he was kind of outcasted in, the, in that in that one moment to then to go through and you sort of touched on it before but the amount of respect and um, sort of being embedded in that in the uh, in the Volcom house there, and the, his performances at Pipe, but it's just gone the complete other way around, huh? And it's funny now that is like a big joke to him, you know, like all like uh, tight end. I could wake up every morning while the was drinking coffee and yell over the fucking the beds. Oh, the WSL cut every single day. <laughs> you know, every was, you single know- day. Well, the funny thing about it was that was the sentiment of everyone at that time. Everyone was everyone was hating the new corporate feel and the, the very NFL style thing, and everyone was kind of saying it. And then Noah just said it, you know, on live TV where there was probably kids watching, which I think was everyone's beef with that moment. But um, it was funny. That- it was funny that he got so much backlash because it, it seemed to be everyone what everyone was thinking at the time. I can't imagine that he would have would have thought that it would be one of it would be like the catchphrase for him forever. But, yeah, I know. You know yeah. Toby Cregan's joke. Hmm. He said, uh, "What did Noah say to the snail? <laughs> Fuck the wow. WS shell." God. <laughs> Toby was so proud of himself when he came up with that, and I, I back him because it's a pretty good joke. Hey, so what, t- talk to me about Noah surfing because you 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 know we've all seen him ripped a bag out of, um, you know, his six ones. What do you think of you surfing on the, on the alternate boards? I think it was kind of a mixed bag. You know, I think it's, I think that's what's kind of cool about those boards. It's like some of those boards just like immediately connect with a surfer, no matter what they're used to riding. You know, I think that when he got on the Picel or when he got on that Sapporo pipe or that, even that Simon Jones, which are nothing like what he normally rides, uh, I think that he just basically stood up and it worked. It did exactly what we wanted it to do. Mm. Uh, and it was cool to see him like push the other sides of his surfing, you know, cause it's, I think Noah for as unpredictable as his surfing is, it is almost predictably unpredictable in a way, you know, like you stand up and you know, he's looking for like the meanest part of the wave to try and do an air or like to, you know, to do some sort of hammer. And so to watch him like try and focus on like how a board felt rail to rail and how it transitioned through turns and trying to like connect maneuvers on certain boards because of the way that he felt they should be ridden. It was nice to see him sort of open up his skill set a little bit. What about the Scroff? How do you say his name? Schroff. Schroff. I always, man, I'm Schroff. 
pronunciation because I to me that thing just looked like a dog. But at the same time, I was kind of loving it because it was it was pretty experimental, and that's what this electric acid's all about. And why do you think why do you think Noah loved it? I mean, I think Noah that was like him pushing the concept in his mind to its extreme because I do think that he just loved Peter Schraub as a character. Yeah, I think he just loves the idea of a guy who's audacious enough to put on a speedo and you know a chainsaw, a surfboard that was made overseas to make his point. Yeah, even if it even if it cops him hell and you know a lot of social like circles. Um, you know, Peter's a sixty-nine year old or whatever he is, sixty late sixties. California board builder who could not give a fuck. Yeah, Truly. so tell us, because you hung with him recently, tell us what what, oh, his, what his crib's like and what his whole shtick is. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the most, like, eccentric, from the outside, when you were, if you were just to, like, take his whole trip in, he feels almost like a Shel Silverstein character, or like a Dr. Seuss character or something. Um, but yeah, he lives in this crazy house on this hill that's basically by itself overlooking the Long Beach Harbor in San Pedro. And he's converted this house into all these individual crazy, like, prop rooms. So you walk into one room and it's all Chanel. And it's got all <laughs> this old Hollywood, like, prop. He used to work and doing set design and, like, merchandising and stuff like that throughout the 80s after he stopped on boards for a while. Um, and it's just like, it's nuts. There's like, I mean, every room is a theme and it's, everything's bright and almost gaudy and nuts. I mean, it's like over the top, everything. It's like this, it's like this maze of these crazy little rooms that he's built. Um, and then, you, you know, he, he's got this little hairless dog that runs around with him and he's, you know. He's like a proper eccentric. Proper eccentric. And then yeah. he has this workshop down in, down the street where he builds boards that, that houses just this, I mean, he's a borderline border of the most obscure, massive amounts of strange things, you know, doll parts and chandeliers. And, yeah. And is he, is he relatable? You know, like sometimes when you meet really eccentric people, you, you're like, well, he's on a different bus to the rest of us and you can't really connect. Or is he, could you like chat to him and just be in and get on his oh, level? He's, you can totally get on his level. Oh, sweet. He's, he's like, He's how I imagine if I if I was in a, if I was a little bit more eccentric, I would hope that I had the, the courage to be that carefree at that age. Yeah. What the fuck does he have to care about? You know? And yeah. he 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 is very much his own person and does not care what people think. And if you can you know if you can come and wrap out with him and get on his level, he's one of the nicest dudes ever. And I do think he doesn't have a mean or like hurtful bone in his body with any of his messaging. I think he truly loves the craft of building surfboards by hand, even though his boards look like art projects. Like he has he's a real reverence for the people that have done it, you know? It takes a character like him to show up every or now and, now and again to make you realize how conservative surfing is for the most part. And it's so good that there are characters like him. That- 100%. And there's nobody that's more proud of being a mirror to be held up to that than Peter. Like yeah. that's something that that's like the, if you want to point to one principle that he stands on, it's that is that the surf industry is so conservative, so conservative, so conservative. That's it. Thanks for listening. Go to stabmag.com to stay in the know. Uh, or, or don't.